The Blaze Radio Network. On demand. You're listening to The Jackie Daly Show. I'm Jackie. I bring years of experience in law, policy, and energy to provide an independent view for solutions that bring America greater energy security. I want you to know from the outset, this show is neither a subsidiary of nor a paid advertisement for any energy corporation. All opinions expressed are my own. You're listening to The Jackie Daly Show. Join us online at JackieDaly.com, on Facebook and on Twitter, at Jackie Daly Show and On Demand. You ask me what time the show is on, the answer is all the time. 24-7 On Demand, you can subscribe and hear us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play Music, or the iHeartRadio app, and you can subscribe for free, and I highly recommend you do. Uh, I was at an exclusive dinner party in downtown Dallas, Texas, not too long ago with a bunch of oil and gas types and a few tech types, and there was a guy there whose name was Mitch, uh, and he works out of Hong Kong, and he's all about taking technology from the United States to Hong Kong and greater China, and he said to me, Jackie, you're constantly talking about energy and oil and gas. You know what? He's like, I couldn't care less. That's old technology. That's an old business. It's so worn out and tired. Who cares? I only care about exciting new technologies. And I said, Mitch, there's a ton of new technology in oil and gas alone. I mean, not to mention the rest of the energy spectrum. It's huge. It's huge. And I'm thinking, this guy's so smart, and he is. Uh, He's really making bank, taking a lot of American technology over. And I'm like, haven't you heard about the fracking revolution? There's huge technology. It's like a spaceship out there in those little trailers doing things you could never imagine with 4D seismic and big, big data. I've had several people on the show talking about big data and the oil patch. Everything is technologically advanced now, every field, but energy is no exception. It's a really big deal. The people who do the best in energy, whether it's investing or it's uh, you know oil and gas operations, that is drilling, uh, the upstream people, all the people, technology is huge. And so I thought, I haven't done my job if the public doesn't know about technology in energy. I mean, it's not like it's a, this isn't Jeg Clampett, right? Drilling for oil and gas. You don't just drop a stick of dynamite down into the hole these days and frack that way and boom, uh, you know, up comes oil and gas. It's actually very complicated. Secondarily, we're moving into a brave new world. Uh, You know, the entire world's trying to transition to renewables and a lot of the concern about renewables, I've talked about it a lot, is how can we predict how much energy we need at any given time because we know renewables are intermittent. The sun doesn't shine all the time. The wind doesn't blow all the time. What do we do when we're trying to work in all these renewables and they don't produce at any given moment? And what if it happens during a time of peak demand? In other words, the worst thing that could possibly happen is that you go low on energy, let's say during a very cold spell, Uh, where people can lose their lives if the power goes out, or a hot spell, a heat wave, where people lose their lives. These things do still happen in the advanced modern world. So we have to care about that, and you're you're right to be concerned. Uh, For example, I had the National Mining Association on the show, and they were saying the clean power plant is going to be a disaster. There's going to be rolling blackouts, rolling brownouts, if we move as aggressively as the federal government wants us to do. Maybe renewables aren't a bad idea, but can we really do them this quickly without serious disturbances in power generation? Well, there's an answer to that question. They're very smart people that work on precisely these issues who are thinking ahead. 
And I heard from some friends of mine over at Drilling Info, and you know who they are. I've had Alan Gilmer on the show and uh, several reps there I, I reference all the time. Great source for information. Uh, the, the company Drilling Info, which is a huge repository for information. In fact, the leading energy uh, company or data analytics platform has uh, recently acquired a company called PRT, that's Pattern Recognition Technologies. And together, I think they're planning uh, to do some amazing things when it comes to helping us know precisely how much energy we need, how much we're going to produce, etc. So my friend John Halbert over there, uh, who does some PR for them, said, hey, I had this amazing lady down in Dallas, and her name is Sogand Shodja. That is a Persian name, very pretty name. She's a very pretty lady with a pretty accent. You're going to enjoy hearing, just hearing her speak is melodic. And uh, you're going to enjoy learning from her. So she is uh, pleased uh, to, or we're pleased. She's graced us with her presence today in the studio. She's here live with us. And she's going to share a little bit about why we should be assured that they know what they're doing these days over at Drilling Info, or at least for the people in the government who don't know what they're doing, Drilling Info can help. Not just them, but investors and anyone, a consumer who's concerned about, am I going to have power when I need it? So, Sogan, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Jackie. It's a pleasure to meet you. And I hope I can live up to all the compliments <laughs> that you gave me. Well, listen, I, we had a chance to talk before we started rolling uh, here today. And so I was very impressed. Uh, I, I knew, well, first of all, I was impressed because, I'll tell you what, I read your bio and I, when, when John first sent it to me, and it says that you have your MS degree in industrial engineering from Purdue University. And I thought to myself, hmm, you know what? I think Sogan must be from the Middle East because <laughs> my best friend in undergrad was from Iran. And um, he, he had all of these lady Iranian friends who had come to the United States. And amazingly, every single one of them does electrical engineering, industrial engineering, mechanical engineering. In this country, that's actually kind of unusual, right? And I don't know exactly why it's unusual. I can I could point to some unflattering brain science, which shows that uh, the average healthy man, I'm getting really controversial here, the average healthy man has like six to 10 times the gray matter in the left side of the brain that's responsible for engineering than the average healthy woman. Now, the good news is the average healthy woman has six to eight times the white matter in the right side of the brain, if I'm remembering this and correctly. And we have more corpus glossum. Thank you very much. I knew, see, she's smart. Do you see why we keep so oh, no, here? I don't want to start that feud. No, yeah, it's, it's, to, it's totally a sexist statement. It's also totally scientific. And what it means is that the, the sexes tend to be gifted in certain areas that uh, complement each other. And um, sure doesn't hurt my feelings. I mean, I know I'm a right brain girl. I can never be Sogan Shodcha, for example. Uh, I, I could not get an MS in, in industrial engineering. I did go to Purdue University for three summers when I was a junior high school student. I used to go to the Talented and Gifted programs in the summertime um, and enjoyed it very much. So point is, she's an accomplished lady. She's at Drilling Info. She knows a lot about big data. And she is a senior vice president for Drilling Info. So uh, with all of that preface... Uh, let's, let's start with something like this. So gone. let's say I, you know, and I'm going to an oil and gas conference, uh, the big, the NAEP conference, one of the biggest in the country yes. coming up uh, this week, I'll be interviewing Tom Brokaw there for the entertainment. So my job's hey. pretty easy and fun. Um, but I'll tell you, I know what's going to happen at the Hilton bar, which is where all the conversations happen. 
Um, the oil and gas guys uh, are highly skeptical of being able to work renewables into the grid. Obviously, they like their business. And, um, you know, they will say, and there's a lot of people in Washington to, to back this, that we just cannot uh, know how to predict how much energy we're going to need when you're dealing with a intermittent energy source up against the backup, which maybe would be natural gas, would be the most obvious one, a fossil fuel you can always call upon in a time of need. Um, what is your confidence level? Why should we be confident that we are able to predict both? You, you point out to me uh, the difference is predicting demand and predicting the ability to generate electricity. So explain that. They're two different things. Absolutely. I think um, both of those um, forecasting uh, issues are quite complex. And um, as you well know, electricity is the only commodity that cannot be stored efficiently and cost effectively. Mm -hmm. Um, So uh, currently, even with all the advances in uh, the storage and batteries, commercial scale storage is not available cost-effectively. This means that at all times, generation of energy and consumption has to be balanced. The imbalances in the supply and demand can have major impact on the cost of providing electricity, as you mentioned, operational efficiencies, and most importantly to the consumer, the grid reliability and, and um, consumer safety in case, in case of blackouts. Let me stop you for just a second, Sogan. So, yeah, exactly. Um, you know, I just we just did a focus group at the Texas Public Policy Foundation. I'm a consultant for them on this side. And we're asking people all kinds of questions about energy, what they understand about electricity and oil and gas and coal. Here's what we found, actually, that you just triggered a memory. Number one. Almost half of Americans don't know that electricity is not its own form. They think it's its own form of energy, just like oil, gas, coal, nuclear. They don't understand what electricity is. And the second thing is the number one concern about energy was reliability. That I was shocked. That came in as number one. I'm like, who's thinking about energy reliability? I thought I was the only one. Turns out people think about these things and care about it. I'm being told we have to go to a break. So I'm going to do that right now before they come and pull me off the stage. All right, we'll be right back with Sogond Shodcha. We're listening to The Jackie Daly Show. You're listening to The Jackie Daly Show, and we're continuing a conversation with Sogand Shodsha. And she, you might tell by the, by the uh, name, if you are astute, is originally from Iran. She's been here in the United States for a long time. She's an industrial engineer, got her master's up in Purdue, quite a sharp lady. And she is now with Drilling Info, got lots of friends at Drilling Info. That is the top leading energy data analytics platform. So I know that sounds very technical, But basically, they have a lot of information, critical information that we need, that the market needs to be able to know um, how to predict how much energy we're going to need and how much we're going to have based on what's, let's say, feeding the grid at any given moment. So if you're in one part of the country, you know, your grid feed is going to be natural gas, uh, maybe 30 percent, maybe coal 30 percent. 
maybe nuclear 18%, maybe uh, wind 3%, maybe hydroelectric X percent. So, and then if you're in a different part of the country, the mix can be a little bit different. Um, so people, very smart people have to think about this and be concerned that we always have reliable energy. Because as I said before I went to the break, uh, our polling and focus groups from the Texas Public Policy Foundation show that reliability is the number one concern that people have of any age, millennials, older people. And I tend to think of Americans as being spoiled. Very rare is the time I go hit the light and, it, and, and the light doesn't come on. Very rare is a, a third world type blackout in the United States. But when it does happen, it can happen at really tragic times. Uh, peak demand, cold snaps, heat waves, it's very dangerous. So uh, Sogon is an expert at predicting precisely when these types of things are going to happen. That's what our company does. And it's a private company, by the way. This isn't some government agency uh, that, you know, tells the federal government how to be smart. Or, or the states, by the way, uh, regulate electricity and, and, and energy for the most part. Um, so Sogon, yeah, what would you say about that? For people who are concerned about reliability with the massive rollout now of wind and solar, what would you say? Well, one of the things I wanted to address, you mentioned reliability and blackouts. PRT was instrumental in improving the accuracy of the forecast to above 98 percentile, going back to 20 years ago. Hence, taking all the um, obscurity and abstractness out of predicting the load forecast, load meaning demand, out of it. This was amazing because every hour the demand changes mm-hmm. based on the, the consumption that, you know, how much uh, energy we use by consumers, the, the commercial clients, the industrial clients. So it's not a trivial problem to solve. It used to be that uh, human beings used to look at the patterns of usage and try to do that themselves. PRT with the our founder, Dr. Al Kutanzad, for the first time before artificial intelligence and machine learning, which I will describe later, was fashionable, applied artificial neural networks to this problem. All of a sudden, the accuracy for day ahead, one day out, looking at tomorrow's demand, went up to 98, 99 percentile. A huge, huge impact on operational efficiency a huge impact on cost savings. Now, the companies, utilities, municipalities, power marketing companies, knew exactly demand will be for the power consumption. Hence, they could back it up with generation. Like I said, the generation um, amount has to equal the consumption. Otherwise, there'd be imbalances. If you were too short, there'd be blackout. If you're too long, you have excess, then you have to get rid of that power and sometimes you have to sell it at negative prices. So there is a negative financial impact. Mm -hmm. PRT, applied artificial intelligence, this is way before Alexa, the smart (laughs) cars, et cetera, to this problem with a high level of success. Hence, today, uh, we have more than 70% of the largest utilities in North America using our product. And with the amazing acquisition by DI and their resources internationally, we are hoping to take this uh, product at the international level. Just think about the impact on 
um, not turning on excess generation, which has an impact on environment. It has an impact on cost, right. et cetera. Well, let me stop you for just a second. I'm thinking about when I spent time in Europe. I was there in 1998. I spent about nine months in Europe. I went over 13 countries. I was surprised how much variation there is in electric reliability, even in Europe. Granted, this is 20 years ago, but this is the industrialized world. Uh, and then you read about, you know, awful stories about like in Africa where a, a neonatal baby is in an incubator and they lose power for hours at a time and lose the baby because they don't have power. So here we just take this for granted. Uh, what you're describing, when you first started talking about PRT and artificial intelligence applied to energy markets, I'm thinking, you know, it's, it's people like PRT who make America the top in the world for, for reliability as a place to do business. Uh, if you open a, a plant here in the United States, you know you're going to have power. You just don't have to worry I mean, about this. And it's a safety issue. Keeping lights on in the highways, anything. Um, so for you guys, first of all, I, I really think it's the kind of innovation that makes my country competitive in all the world. And that's the first thing that came to mind. But the second thing was I'm thinking about Europe and being in Spain, you know, and thinking we didn't have any hot water until 10 a.m., you know, because they didn't have any electricity that would come on in some parts of the country. And it's, I mean, it was over the top. And as an American, you don't want to be an ugly American and complaining about these kinds of things. But the truth is, why shouldn't the whole world be as reliable? And so you guys want to roll out internationally, which would be amazing. Engines are so robust that they are data agnostic. By that I mean you pour in any historical data for the variables that impact the predicting the, the demand. Uh, we can put it in our engines and out comes the very, very reliable, accurate forecast. Yeah, that's, uh, that's really amazing. And it sounds... Um in some ways, it sounds so simple, you know, like it, but it wasn't it so simple. It, it, 20 years ago, this wasn't so simple. And, and most of the world still hasn't conquered it. And uh, let me tell you how complex it's becoming. Just like you mentioned with the uh, solar plants going up, there is an impact on the demand. So in the middle of the day, what we call behind the meter solar panels, these are um, the uh, individual residential uh, clients that put a solar panel on their house, they, they're not using the electricity off the grid. So all of a sudden, they're not consuming from this utility. And, and in the middle of the day, there is a dip in the demand. So that has become a very challenging uh, forecasting issue behind the meter forecasting. And we are currently doing that with our clients in the West Coast because they're seeing the, seeing the impact of it. Mm-hmm. The, the technology that we are deploying, it's by far, from what I've seen, it's competitive benchmarking is by far the best. And this is just here from Dallas. Yeah, really amazing. And, and you guys are based in Austin, Texas. Uh, or you got that? I saw your headquarters are down there with 400 employees. I had no idea um, that that drilling info actually was that large, and that you serve 3,000 companies globally. So that's pretty exciting. Yes, drilling info is quite visionary. They have they are now in every um, energy sector. They are providing platforms and predictive tools for every energy sector now. Uh, they used to be, as you well know, in oil and gas. And with the acquisition of PRT, I talked about demand forecasting. We also do price, electricity price forecasting, and 
uh, the topic that you brought up that's very, very important, renewable generation forecasting. We do wind generation forecasting and we do solar generation forecasting. And you're absolutely right. Those resources are intermittent. They are not easy to predict. Wind can die down in a matter of seconds. So you have to deploy very sophisticated technology to be able to um, predict those so you can rely on those resources during those peak hours. Well, and and before we conclude here, um, I want to hit again on the topic of electricity not being the one, it being the one commodity that you cannot store. This is something people don't appreciate. When we talk about commodities, you're thinking about corn, you're thinking about oil, you're thinking about all kinds of things. Um, so I'm hearing I have 30 seconds. I'm so long-winded, daggone it. But, but okay, so Sogon, how far away are we from being able to store energy? We've only got 20 seconds. What's, how many years away are we in terms of technology, do you think, from being able to store I it? just read a report that by 2020, we should have large-scale um, batteries online. But um, um, I, I don't know at this point. I, yes, I'm those not are often in the optimistic. business of predicting that. <laughs> That's right. Those, there can always be optimistic uh, predictions there. We're talking with Sogond Shodsha, and she is with Drilling Info, which has just acquired PRT. They're keeping this country number one in the world in electricity markets and really just in data analytics altogether. It's part of what makes us competitive and makes America great. So thank you so much for coming on, Sogond. Thank you very much. A pleasure. Likewise. Thank you. You're listening to The Jackie Daly Show. You're listening to The Jackie Daly Show. Join us online at JackieDaly.com, on Facebook and on Twitter at Jackie Daly Show, and on demand, this show and all shows you can find on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or Google Play Music, or even now the iHeartRadio app. So multiple platforms, wherever you like to listen, you can find us. People always ask, what time is the show? The answer is all the time. You can find this podcast right there. All right. The, the, the federal government or any government should have to play by the same rules as everyone else and certainly the rules that they lay out for the rest of us. I know every single one of us are constantly monitored by so many levels of government, state agencies from the State Highway Patrol to the BLM to the EPA to the IRS. They're constantly watching over our shoulders and making sure that we abide by the rules. So when I see stories... An instance where the government doesn't abide by its own rules. You know what? I like to call them out for it because they're constantly in my mailbox, in my pocket, in my bank account, in my life. Uh, reference my health care insurance bill that arrives every month. They make me pay for up until quite recently. Uh, thank you, President Trump. Um, so, you know what? When, when they don't do what they're supposed to do, I want you to know about it. Because what else can we do? In many ways, we are powerless to do anything about it except put sunshine on it and expose it to everyone and call them out. Also, uh, we are very lucky in this country to have a handful of people and public interest law firms or nonprofits like the Mountain States Legal Foundation up in Colorado that will go to bat for you 
when the government abuses you, when they don't abide by the rules, when they harm you, when they hurt your property. Uh, Most people don't have any ability to fight back against this. I mean, who can afford the, the army of lawyers that would be required to go after the government every single time they do something wrong? I think they do what they want in Washington, you know, the, 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 the bad bureaucrats. They're not all bad, but you know what? There's a bad one in every bunch um, because they think you can't do anything about it. They think you're just going to lay down for it because what else can you do? Well, there are some people who can defend you, who can step into that uh, gap for you. And um, I, I'm not sure about mountain states. Maybe maybe uh, Mr. William Perry Penley, who we have on the line, can tell us if he wants to. Um, but sometimes donors pay for this legal work. They pay for lawyers to jump in there and defend you when you can't do it yourself. And people like William Perry Penley, who is a recurring guest on the Jackie Daly Show, will step up to defend you. He has argued many cases before the U.S. Supreme Court. He's a contributor to the Washington Examiner's Beltway Confidential blog and president of Mountain State's Legal Foundation and the author of, get ready for it, Sagebrush Rebel, Reagan's Battle with Environmental Extremists and Why It Matters Today. Heck, we're going to talk about the BLM abusing people, but I might just move on to that book. Sounds kind of cool. Mr. Penley, welcome back to the Jackie Daly Show. Hey, Jackie. Great to be with you. Thank you. Good to have you here. So let's just start with today's case, today's fight. There's always a fight. We'll never run out of fights. If you love freedom, there's always something for you to do, especially as a lawyer. So William Perry Penley, who goes by Perry. Perry, tell us what you're working on right now up in Colorado. Well, I'm representing a man uh, who lives west of Boulder, Colorado, up in the mountains, uh, uh, hill country, uh, mining country. It was mined heavily back in the day in the 1880s and 1890s. And we represent a man who has a small house. Really, it's an old mining shed. Uh, he and his wife have lived in for the last several years. Uh, his neighbor is the Bureau of Land Management. It has an old piece of mining property next door to him. And it also has a big old mining shed that was built out of heavy timbers and stone and masonry and concrete uh, back, we think, in 1890 or so. And back in 2011, after the big fires swept through that area, you probably heard about it on the news. Uh, in fact, uh, his neighbors on both sides lost their homes, but uh, our client, Michael Whitehead, was scared. But he noticed there was some erosion. He called his neighbor, the BLM. He said, come on out, uh, look at this erosion situation. And uh, Mike, uh, Michael is a mechanical engineer. And he realized that this shed was uh, pretty precariously perched over his property, just 10 feet away. And so he told the BLM, hey, look, that's going to fall over. It's going to fall over onto my property. Uh, You either need to fix it or sell me the land it's on and I'll fix it and make sure it doesn't fall over. Okay, William, let me stop you for just a second. There I go again, calling you William Perry. Uh, Perry, so um, let me understand. You're saying that this man, he's, he's an engineer, so he knows what he's talking about. He is living on this mountainside. Uh, the BLM is his next-door neighbor. That is, they own the property. And they have this massive stone mason you know, shed that's 10 foot above his property on the mountain, and it's about to fall on his house. Is that what I understand you're saying? Yeah, Paul fall over onto his property and roll over onto onto his land and right bang up against his house. And that's his fear. And he tells 
He tells numerous officials over a three-year period, you got to fix this or sell it to me and I'll fix it. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, over a three-year period, he's bumped from person to person. You know, typical government thing, uh, he, he's dealing with one person and then they'll call and, and, oh, that person doesn't work here anymore. You need to talk to somebody else. And uh, nobody's really in charge. Nobody's responsible. No one's and accountable. So, no one's accountable. Uh, 2011, 2012, 2013, and finally in 2013, they say, okay, we're going to get back to you right away. In fact, their quote was in their letter, quote, a response is forthcoming, unquote. And that's the last he heard. <laughs> it's the last uh, time from, you ever heard from the BLM. Yeah, exactly. That was it. They, they, they went to incommunicado. Uh, and so three years later, in 2016, exactly as he feared would happen, uh, the building fell over. Middle of the night, uh, I think uh, March 11, March 12, sometime in the middle of the night, boom, it fell over. Stones, heavy uh, boulders rolled up onto his house, up against his house. Trees were dislodged, slammed up into his house, hit uh, the circuit breaker box. Uh, Wait, and, trees were uh, slammed it drove into the back house. of his house? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was just, you okay. can imagine a big, heavy shed made of timbers and, uh, and uh, uh, mortar and stone. Uh, it was a mess. And uh, he, he came out and c- couldn't believe it. Immediately got the BLM on the phone and said, hey, I, I told you guys this was going to happen. And uh, over, over several months, uh, finally, finally he heard from them. They sent him a note. And they said, uh, the shed does not belong to us. <laughs> it's not historic. And you can clean up our mess, but whatever you do, don't come on our property to do it. Okay. So hold on. I know the official response. Not our shed. It's not historic. Go ahead and clean it up, but don't come on our land. <laughs> but So it was on their property, but he can't go on their property to clean it up. They also won't sell it to him. So this is your typical, it's impossible to deal with these people. And actually, if you started in 2011, this happened in 2016. This guy's been jack, jacking around with them for five years at this point by the time it finally collapses and puts boulders into his house. Okay, I have to cut to a break, but when we come back, we're going to talk to William Perry Pinley, who is going into federal court to defend a landowner against the BLM. <sighs> if only there were about, I don't know, 10,000 more William Perry Pinleys, actually. I'd like to call one. All right, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll continue the conversation. You're listening to The Jackie Daly Show, and we are continuing a conversation with William Perry Penley. He is the president of Mountain State's Legal Foundation. He has argued cases before the U.S. Supreme Court, and he is the defender of your property rights. Uh, and one of the very few, frankly, there, there are far too few people who will stand in the gap between you and the federal government, or presumably the state government as well, uh, when they come after you in an attempt to... Uh, you know, at times not play by the rules that they lay down for everyone else. Uh, And in this case, damaged property. What we talked about in the last segment is that Perry's client is a landowner in Colorado who tried for five years to get the BLM to clean up a 
stone shed on their property above his property. The guy's an engineer. He says, you know, if you don't clean this up and get this out from above my house on the mountain, it's going to fall on my house. Sure enough, five years later, after he's been passed through the agency from bureaucrat to bureaucrat, and they refuse to let him go on the land to fix anything, and they refuse to sell it to him, and they refuse to fix it, it destroys his house. So now BLM says, oh, sorry about that. It's not a historic building, so, uh, you know, pound sand. Uh, Please do clean it up, uh, clean up our mess, and uh, just don't come on federal property to do it. So this is the way that they're treating a landowner in Colorado. And you know something I'll point out? You're always hearing about how uh, the feds treat property owners. You know what? If we had some kind of state of disrepair or, God forbid, we actually did something near, uh, you know, a wetland, you can be fined like $75,000 a day by the feds to get a fire lit under your tail to actually do what they want you to do. But you see what happens when it's them who are the bad actors. And here you have one, one human being up against the federal government. Now he has no choice typically, but to spend a lot of money to go into court and fight them to try to get some kind of recourse. But lucky for him, Perry Penley and the Mountain States Legal Foundation are going to take up the case on his behalf. And these are capable litigators. They are the heroes uh, who, who, at least in this case, will be able to come to the side of the landowner and try to make this right. So, Perry, with all that background that you shared with this last segment, you know, what is a landowner supposed to do? I'm sure there are people all over the country this is happening to right now because it's not just the BLM and there's plenty of state and federal agencies that will run roughshod over your property rights. You know, what do you do? Let's imagine they're lucky enough to have a William Perry Penley to defend them and represent them. What is your plan? Well, of course, uh, what the, the federal government uh, passed a law called the Federal Court Claims Act, and what that law says is, if one of our employees, because the king, the sovereign, the United States government is sovereign, it's the king, it can do no wrong, and you cannot sue the federal government unless it gives permission. And so Congress gave people like our client, Michael Whitehead, the permission to sue it whenever federal employees do something that in, say, the state of Colorado would be a tort or a civil wrong. And so if a property owner in Colorado, if the situation were reversed, if that were Michael Whitehead's shed that fell on a neighbor or fell on the federal government's property, then he's liable for committing a trespass or uh, a nuisance. And on that basis, we file the federal claim with the federal government and say, hey, aren't you going to fix this? Uh, They have six months to respond. They responded and said, read our letter. Read our letter where we said it's not our shed, it's not historic, and you can clean it up, but don't come on our land. And so on the 18th of January of this year, we filed a lawsuit against the federal government to take uh, the BLM and the United States government and U.S. attorneys in the federal court uh, to clean it up and and obey the, obey the law, which is maintain your property in such a way that it does not harm your neighbors. And that's, that's being a good neighbor, and that's obeying the law, and the government won't do it. Right, because so, right now they want him to foot the bill. For all the cleanup and all the damage to his house and the trees that have been driven into the back of his house and the boulders that have rolled across his property. Um, right. So, so let's and imagine... I'll, I'll, and, and, and Jackie, I'll tell you what would happen if the situation were reversed. If okay. it were Michael Whitehead shed that fell over onto the federal government, the federal government would have sent a SWAT guard U.S. Marshals <laughs> out to his house 
to take him into custody to bring him down to the courthouse to serve him with a lawsuit for trespassing on federal land. Unbelievable. Uh, I know that's the case because it happened to a client of mine in New Jersey where just um, where the government alleged a trespass, and they showed up early one morning uh, with with uh, with a full SWAT team uh, to serve uh, serve my clients. You know, so, and aside from the outrage and the indignity of that happening, there's no way to treat an American citizen. Um, taxpayers pay for all that. We're actually paying exactly. for this kind of abuse, and it reminds me of a story. I'll just make a. Quick segue here, a a story I learned about as a congressional staffer when I was uh, focusing on Judiciary Committee, which is a a crime, and federal crime is part of our jurisdiction. Um, They had an example. This is a real story where there's a guy in, I think, South Dakota who's going to ship tulips to South America. Unbeknownst to him, you know, there was a brand new federal criminal law uh, posted in the Federal Register through the agencies, not your Congress, uh, which said, and this is, this is one of 300,000 federal criminal regs, by the way, which said that if you don't label your tulip shipment to South America in a specific way, you've committed a felony, risking two years in the penitentiary. Like, he's supposed to know that. So <clears throat> he breaks the law. They send out six armed officers to arrest this man, and he was face down on the pavement and cuffed. And this is for failing to put proper labels on tulips. And I'm thinking to myself, Perry, uh, you know, as a lawyer working the, the, that committee, I'm thinking, wait a second, isn't law enforcement about priorities, right? Does this mean you've locked up every drug dealer, every pedophile, every terrorist? You know, if you locked up all the baggage, every murderer, every rapist, every arsonist, everyone starting a forest fire and burning tens of thousands of acres, are they all locked up? And now the best thing you have to do with your time and money is lock up a guy shipping tulips. Anyway, I totally digress. I'm just saying this, to me, feels like more of the same. Your client in New Jersey. And this is why what you do is so important, Perry. And really, if I had a billion dollars, I would fund another 10,000 Perry Penleys to go after the government to stop this. I think it's the most dangerous thing going on, one of the greatest outrages and injustices, because we shouldn't have to pay to defend ourselves against this behavior. And by the way, Tulip Shipper did go to the pen. Felony. Felony. You know, read a book. It's called Three Felonies a Day. Great book. Check out the book and, and, and become concerned. And what we're talking about, but I know I'm, I'm digressing here, but really I'm just on fire about this. What we're talking about with Perry Penley at Mountain State's Legal Foundation is here civil law. We're not talking about criminal law. We're not talking about anyone being locked up. And in fact, here, you know, Perry and his client are moving against the government, not the other way around. But the point is, if the shoe were on the other foot, you would see a very different sense of urgency uh, coming out of the agency. Okay, Perry, now that I've <laughs> now that I've detonated and let everyone know exactly how I feel about it, um, tell me what you would see as a good result for your client. What what are you hoping to see happen right now in federal court? Well, I hope the federal government quickly comes to its senses and says, well, this is wrong. Uh, We don't know who screwed up here, but we're going to make it right. We're going to send an expert out there. We're going to find out how much it's going to cost to make it right. And then we're going to pay to make it right. And we're going to we're going to hire somebody to fix it or we're going to give the money to Mr. Wyatt and we're going to and we're going to be a good neighbor. Uh, That's what I hope 
happens. I hope people come to their senses. But my expectation is we're going to go all the way up to the eve of trial, uh, depositions and hearings and uh, filings back and forth. And on the eve of trial, they'll finally say, well, okay, we'll write you a check. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, that's the problem with dealing with the federal government. You, know, you, you see so often at the Supreme Court of the United States when, uh, when a, a widow comes out and, and, and talks about her case having just been argued, and the reason why so many times it's a widow, because the case took so long that her husband passed away. Right. That's how crazy, crazy it is dealing with the federal government. They, simply no one, and no one has the gumption to step up and say, uh, we were wrong. We're going to fix it. We're going to make it right. We're going to be a good citizen. We're going to be a good neighbor. The federal government, I'm telling you, Jackie, is the worst neighbor you can imagine. Right, because if you're a federal bureaucrat, saying I was wrong is not a good way for upward mobility inside the agency. And that's what that's what they're putting first all too often instead of the interest of the public, which is their job. All right, I have to go to a break. But when we come back, we'll talk with William Perry Penley. And he is a contributor to the Washington Examiner's Beltway Confidential blog and the president of Mountain States Legal Foundation. You're listening to The Jackie Daly Show. 